Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Listeners, welcome to another episode of Religion in the American Experience, a podcast series dedicated to better understanding and participating in the American Project by showing the vast influence of religion on America and America on religion, including the establishment of the revolutionary and indispensable idea of religious freedom as a governing principle in the United States. Join us in building the Digital First National Museum of American Religion by registering at nmar.org forward slash sign up. And that sign up is with a hyphen. Since last summer, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan in the wake of America's departure, some 70,000 Afghan refugees have come to the United States through Operation Allies Welcome. This has taxed the country's capacity to resettle these people who fled for their lives. There are 10 non-governmental agencies the government has depended upon to help resettle them. This looked like a heavy, heavy task because of the sheer numbers and the profound human suffering and anguish on our doorsteps that these numbers represent. We have with us today two leaders of two of those non-governmental agencies, Matthew Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief, and Mark Hetfield, President and CEO at HIAS. We thank you both very much for your time and all your work. Mark, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the founding of HIAS, the how, the when, and the why? Sure. And one one small correction to the introduction that actually there are nine of us. There are You're nine, right. There uh, are nine. Yes. Thank you. National Refugee Resettlement Agencies. And, and that's been the number with a very short period of exception since uh, 1980. There was briefly 10, but there are just nine resettlement agencies in the United States. And uh, six of us are, are faith-based. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are, it, it's interesting that in this day and age, there are no uh, Muslim agencies at the table. And that is more because of just the barriers to becoming a refugee resettlement agency. Um, but we would certainly welcome a 10th agency representing the Muslim faith since uh, a, a significant plurality of the refugees that we're helping today, unlike in 1980, uh, are of the of the Muslim faith, um, but in terms of of Hyas's founding, we were started in in uh, over a century ago at the end of the 19th century, at a time when a plurality of refugees coming to this country uh, were indeed Jewish, were of the Jewish faith, and were were fleeing anti-Semitism and 
and pogroms uh, primarily in Eastern Europe and what was then the Russian Empire. And so we, we uh, highest began assisting refugees uh, because they were Jewish, but we like to say over the last century, we've started helping refugees, not because they were Jewish, but because we are. And so now we assist refugees of all faiths and ethnicities um, come to the United States with, without uh, discrimination. And we also help refugees around the world uh, overseas be safe where they are because resettlement is such a difficult uh, thing to access. Okay, thank you, Mark. And I'll, I'll have a few questions that come out of that, uh, but let's first look at uh, World Relief. Matthew, can you give us a little how, when, and why uh, World Relief started? Sure. So uh, World Relief was actually founded initially not as World Relief, but as War Relief. It was uh, a project of the National Association of Evangelicals, um, really in the, the days after World War II, as churches, especially evangelical churches in the U.S., wanted to come alongside churches in Europe and help with the rebuilding process. So uh, it was actually a church in Boston, Park Street Church, that started this War Relief Commission during the Lenten season, and they took up an offering and asked some other churches that were part of the newly formed National Association of Evangelicals to join that effort. And that War Relief uh, Commission eventually, within a few years, became World Relief. And so really from our founding, we've been focused on displacement. Uh, but it wasn't until the late 70s that World Relief um, began to be really involved in refugee resettlement in the United States. And that was in the, you know, really beginning in the mid-70s mid with the fall of Saigon. Uh, large numbers of refugees coming to the U.S. from um, Southeast Asia, particularly from Vietnam. Actually, it was a missionary couple uh, with one of the denominations that's part of the National Association of Evangelicals that had, had worked in Vietnam for many years. They were back in the States and started getting telegrams and phone calls and letters from people whom they had interacted with in Vietnam, basically just saying, we are desperate, we've had to flee, can you help us get to the United States? And they started knocking on every door uh, possible to find people to help, including within the U.S. government, and um, partnered for a while with one of the other existing resettlement agencies. And as they wanted to expand the, the network of churches they could work with, they, they came to the National Association of Evangelicals, and the NAE put that under the auspices of World Relief. So since 1979, World Relief has been one of those uh, what's now nine resettlement agencies. And okay. really from that beginning, we've had displacement issues at the heart of our mission of serving the vulnerable, but also empowering local churches to be a part of welcoming people into local communities. Okay, great. Now, a question for both of you, and we'll start uh, with Mark. Can you give our listeners a sense of the um, uh, religious underpinnings of what you do? I mean, uh, there's probably general uh, uh, guesses and assumptions on this, but can you give us a little bit of detail there, Mark? Of, of course. Uh, Hyas, uh, we like to emphasize that the commandment to welcome the stranger, because we were once strangers in the land of Egypt, is repeated no less than 36 times in the Torah, which is more frequently than any other commandment. And this, this makes it very clear uh, that we have to do this, not because it's necessarily the most important commandment, but it's the easiest one to forget. It's the easiest one to ignore. And so for that reason, it's just repeated over and over and over again in, in our uh, Torah. Um, and, and so this, this comes, of course, from the, the experience of the Hebrews in, in Egypt as an enslaved peoples and their escape to freedom. Um, and, and this is something, of course, that has repeated itself th throughout Jewish history over, over the centuries 
this narrative of, of being refugees, of being strangers in a strange land. So it, it really goes to the core of who we are as a people and to our, to our values and to our beliefs. Okay, great. Thank you, Mark. Matthew. Yeah, I mean, when I speak at churches, I, I'm often starting with, with the Hebrew scripture. So it's a lot of those same principles and what Christians think of as the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that speaks specifically to that call to love the foreigner. Um, and then for, for Christians, and that carries into the New Testament where we, you know, the Jesus has asked, what's the greatest commandment? And it's to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor and drawing out of the Hebrew scriptures. But Jesus's clarification of who your neighbor is, is the story of the Good Samaritan which was a traveler of a different religion and different ethnic, a different ethnicity who's in need. So it's pretty clear for Christians that our call to love our neighbor, which is supposed to be this all encompassing command. Um, it can't be narrowly defined just to those who share our, you know, our zip code or our ethnicity or our religion. And then, you know, another major theme in the new Testament is this command to practice hospitality. And interestingly in the, the Greek of the new Testament, that word is philoxenia. It is literally the love of strangers. So I think sometimes for American Christians, we tend to think of hospitality as like having our friends over for a meal or having our, you know, our in-laws are coming so we clean the guest room. But if we're loving our friends and our relatives, we've actually missed the mark. And those are good things to do, clearly. But the call to hospitality is beyond that, to love those who are strangers, to love those who are different from us. Um, and in the book of Hebrews, we're told that some people by welcoming strangers have actually welcomed angels without realizing it. So we are, a lot of our challenge to American churches is to remember that those who, who some in our society might see as, you know, as different and even as a potential threat could actually be a blessing that God has sent. And it's our, you know, as Christians, it's, a, it's a, not just a suggestion, but a command to welcome those individuals. Okay, great, wonderful. This has been very helpful. Let's uh, get into some stories. We'll start sort of older stories of what you all have done. Uh, Mark, perhaps you could f share a few stories, uh, one or two, maybe three of what Hyas has done, you know, uh, specifically uh, with resettlement of refugees since its founding uh, up through, say, 2015. And this can be in the United States, but also uh, elsewhere. Oh, you're on mute, Mark. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. Um, and and it's it, we we find our these stories repeating themselves over and over again. Um, they're uh, the, my my favorite, uh, I, I guess, is I'm I'm still very good friends with uh, this Kinder Transport survivor. I mean, you, you're familiar with the Kinder Transport, which was the um, which was the effort in the United Kingdom uh, to rescue children from Nazi persecution without their parents in the late 1930s. And so uh, this was an effort where about 10,000 children were saved, were brought to the United Kingdom. And Hyas then resettled many of them to the United States. Uh, and we resettled one such person, Manny, Manny Lindenbaum, um, who was a small child. Uh, he ended up, uh, he, was, he was on one of the last ships out of Poland to the United Kingdom. His his um, sister and his parents both were subsequently murdered at, at Auschwitz. His sister was not allowed to get on the kinder transport boat because at 14, she was considered to be uh, too old for that particular evacuation. Um, so she was left behind with the parents. They were all killed. He went to the United Kingdom and was subsequently resettled to his aunt and uncle by Hyas at a chicken farm in Tom's River, New Jersey. 
and he harbored such strong anger, frankly, toward his mother for having given him up um, in Poland, although what she did when she gave him up was to save his life, and it did save his life, but it took him and his brother decades to get past that, and when they finally did get past it, he went to Europe in his 80s and um, decided to, with his grandchildren, ride a bicycle to uh, follow his steps backwards from Poland into Germany and cross the Polish-German border on World Refugee Day. And he did it to raise money for Hyas's refugee programs in Chad, helping refugee children and helping them cope with the losses in ways that he was not really able to do so when he was a refugee, when he went through this experience. Um, but the, the experience of Manny is something which unfortunately we see repeated over and over again, even, even now when we see, you know, issues of child separation, when we see what's going on in Ukraine right now with uh, women and children having to flee, um, you know, without the men who, who have to stay behind and, and fight for their country. And so we're seeing these, these horrible experiences of displacement and what children go through um, again and again. And as real, resilient as children are, they never really get over it. Um, but this is a story, again, Hyas is over 100 years old, but we, we still keep seeing the same thing uh, occurring and, and recurring. That's um, quite a story. So you are still friends with him. Yeah, in fact, I went um, bike riding with him just last month in Lafayette, Louisiana, and he's, he's now 89. He uses an e-bike, uh, but uh, he's still riding. Wow. Matthew, why don't you share a story too? And, and Mark, we may come back to you for another another uh, instance of Hyas's help uh, prior to, to today. Matthew. Yeah, I'm, you know, that's such a powerful story. And as Mark said, I'm, I think for World Relief, similarly, I mean, we have like hundreds of thousands of stories we could share. It's the, of individuals who've been resettled over the decades. I, I haven't been around for all those decades, but um, I'll maybe share just a, a story that affects, you know, that I was personally connected to. And because, uh, you know, a big part of what we see as our role, of obviously beyond providing initial housing and making sure that people can help find it, have are able to find a job and are economically self-sufficient and can access English classes, all those, all the cultural adjustment, we also want to be a, bar, a part of forging welcoming communities. And so a lot of that for us is focused on our church partners. Um, we most often do that through a team of volunteers that we call a good neighbor team, sort of evoking back that command to love your neighbors yourself. Um, so uh, probably about 12, 13 years ago now, um, I was already working at World Relief, um, but my church was also um, had formed a good neighbor team. And they, World Relief called them and said, we have this family coming from Togo in West Africa. Um, and the, there's not large numbers of Togolese refugees who've come to the United States. So it wasn't necessarily a well-established community that we'd be placing them into with other people who would know their language, understand their culture. So we really wanted, the World Relief wanted to prioritize making sure that they had a team to welcome them. And my church did that. It was an Anglican church that I was part of at the time. And so I've, I was sort of a, a part of that process as well, even in my private capacity as a part of my church. And I was there to pick that family up at the airport. So it was actually an extended family, a few different cases, the way that we counted. But there was an older matriarch and then her two children. And one of those children was married and had a young son. And um, they got settled into an apartment complex actually where I was living. And I had neighbors from probably 20 different countries of origin, most of whom had been resettled by World Relief in that community in the western suburbs of Chicago. Um, 
and they just, you know, became very dear friends. And um, it's been really beautiful to watch, you know, their adjustment process, never easy and not without ups and downs. But um, in the process, I also, uh, another member of that team from my church was a French teacher who had signed up because there was a particular need for someone who could speak French, which was their second or third language, but the best one they could communicate in. Uh, and we started dating and now she's my wife 10 years later. So um, that wow. being involved in that, that process of welcoming that family was also really meaningful on a personal level. And that family was at our wedding and um, they, you know, there's still people we, we stay in touch with. So there's so many, you know, fa- individuals on the U S side of this who have a similar story of like, you know, being a part of a team, volunteering, helping a family through at least that initial adjustment period. But often that just creates a, a mutual friendship that goes well beyond, you know, what we might think of as a resettlement period. Right. Wow. That's amazing. That is a personal story. Uh, Mark, um, maybe a, another story uh, of, of when Hyas got involved in, in um, some large resettlement efforts. Sure. Um, I mean, again, it, it's so hard to, to think of, of any one, but I, but I guess I will, I'll talk about the time that I went to Buffalo, New York and, and uh, at the end of 2016, during the enormous, uh, resettlement effort of Syrians. And, and one of the challenges that we have as a, as a Jewish agency, of course, is, is goes to our, our Jewish identity and the way that the populations that we work with see that identity or 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 that what that may trigger in them and and so when the syrian resettlement efforts started about five years ago you know there were questions about it, it's no secret that syrians are educated to believe that jews are bad um that that israel is is bad and so there were serious concerns uh, on our part about how that resettlement effort might go given the educational process that these people go through to hate Israel and and to hate Jews. And what we found was quite the opposite, right? They they actually did, many of the Syrian refugees that we we do resettle, and remember, they have to go to our partner agencies, which are Jewish family service agencies around the country, sometimes on on Jewish community campuses uh, to get their services. Um, But when we do ask them, how they feel about resettling, being resettled or being assisted by the Jewish people uh, or by Jewish people, they say, you know, they realize that everything that they were taught about Jews was a lie, that the, the people who have helped them more than anyone else ever has are the Jewish people that welcomed them to the United States, that assisted, you know, with their resettlement, that made their families feel like Americans. And what really moves us is that they refer to our partner agencies as their Jewish family, right? So instead of calling it the Jewish family service, they will just refer to it as our Jewish family or, or Jewish family. And, um, and so I, I almost wish that we had, highest had resettled all Syrian uh, refugees who came here, just because I feel like through that work, we, we have just done so much to, to build understanding um, and to, to build bridges between you know, uh, the, the Jewish people and the people who are, who are fleeing Syria. Um, so it, it's been nothing but a positive experience. And in Buffalo, New York, uh, just that just before the uh, President Obama left office and President Trump took office, when the, the Muslim ban was, was hanging over our heads, we knew that something like that was imminent. 
it really struck home as to these deep relationships that we had forged with our clients and these, these deep friendships and how scared and upset we were that we were not going to be able to help them reunite with their families um, because of the impending ban. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And so there was, there was one Syrian woman, for example, in Buffalo, who was very upset that she was not going to be able to reunite with her daughter who was living as a refugee in Egypt. And I, and she, and I told her, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, but there's nothing that we can do. Um, once the ban was, was enacted, I said, we, we're just not going to be able to get your daughter here right now under these situations. And so on the very day that Joe Biden was inaugurated as president, she wrote to me uh, on inauguration day and asked me if we can now start getting her daughter to the United States, which is something, unfortunately, we are still working on. Um, but we are hoping that we'll be able to bring that family together. Thank you, Mark. That's a great ins- a, a story with great insight for our listeners. Uh, appreciate that. Matthew, uh, maybe another story from World Relief's past. Sure. I mean, one that came to mind as Mark was sharing the story uh, and just the dynamics of Syrian refugees being resettled by a, a Jewish uh, agency. Um, that that transformation and misconceptions happens both ways. And, you know, we certainly see that in the evangelical community. Um, uh, one example is a, there's a volunteer who's now very faithful, um, relied upon volunteer at World Relief Memphis in Tennessee who, when he first encountered World Relief, it was at his church at a presentation at like a Sunday school class. Um, and he was sort of a critic. He was not sure that he liked his church talking about these Bible verses about welcoming immigrants. And he maybe hadn't thought about it from that biblical perspective, but he'd heard some things on television that made him very skeptical of refugees and of immigrants. Um, but he, to his credit, he wanted to learn more. And he, he wanted to reach out and find out more about what we were doing and why we were doing it from the perspective of our Christian faith. And eventually he was really convicted personally that he, he needed to change his perspective. And the biggest thing that helped him change his perspective was actually that interaction. Um, he signed up, he was a volunteer transportation helper. So basically he's driven people in 15 passenger vans to medical appointments and DSL classes and a variety of other needs. That's a, one of the major needs when people come in and, you know, we don't have the funds to give everyone a car the day that they arrive. And they probably in some cases don't know how to drive it anyway. Um, but Rodney's, whole perspective on issues of refugees and on larger issues of immigration was really transformed through those relationships with people from a variety of backgrounds who come in through the refugee resettlement program. Okay. As you both were talking, I, I think it would be great to understand uh, for our listeners to understand like the process, what happens when, and we'll get to the recent Afghan refugee uh, crisis uh, that's still ongoing for, for you all, I'm sure. Um, but what's what's the what are the nuts and bolts of the process when there's, let's say, a, let's say a large, let's say you know like post Vietnam or you know maybe the U- Ukraine and Afghan. What, what happens? How does this work? How, how does the government get in touch with you? What do they ask you to do, and what do you do? Um, Mark, let's let's let you take a, a crack at that. Well, it's 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 not an easy question. The process is is quite complicated and and has evolved and devolved over the years. What I what I will say, what's interesting is even though we are a nation of refugees and immigrants, prior to 1980, there really was no process, right? I mean, it was there was no there was no statute governing refugee resettlement. There was no um, there was no system 
that was set up. Everything was done very ad hoc uh, for every refugee crisis. And so people were brought in under humanitarian parole, uh, which basically the power of parole, the authority of parole is what the president um, can exercise to bring people here without any real legal status. And uh, so they bring people here from refugee situations, such as after the fall of, of Saigon, um, bring them here under parole, and then worry about getting them green cards uh, later on and trying to figure out how, how that will work. Um, in, 19, in 1980, uh, there was this kind of uh, all at once, uh, several refugee crises going on. There was the, uh, of course, the boat, the Southeast Asian boat crisis, uh, boat refugee uh, crisis. Um, there was the uh, the uh, Soviet Union had finally allowed Jews to leave, so there was a large uh, temporary surge in the number of Jews who were leaving the Soviet Union um, and trying to come to the United States. Then there was the Iranian Revolution which created another significant refugee flow. And all of these things happened at one time in Congress and President Carter realized that we couldn't just keep winging it. We needed an actual system uh, to bring people here in an orderly way and to make sure they had a pathway to a green card and citizenship and, and integration. And so the Refugee Act of 1980 was passed amazingly by a unanimous vote in the Senate and by an overwhelming majority, bipartisan majority in the House of Representatives. I mean, it's you just cannot imagine anything passing in this day and age uh, with that kind of support. Certainly not a bill about refugees or immigrants, right? So it, it's amazing that this happened. It created a pretty solid system that has survived well over the decades. Um, and, and what it does is it, it, it kind of formalized the role of these nine agencies, as I mentioned, six of whom are faith-based. And what happens is refugees who need resettlement are um, identified overseas through priorities that the Department of State sets. These priorities could be based on family links. They could be based on uh, needs identified by the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, or identifying groups of special humanitarian concern in the United States. The applications are prepared overseas, uh, referred to Homeland Security, which uh, makes a decision about whether or not the people meet the refugee definition, meaning they have a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion. If DHS feels that they do and they get through the very arduous security vetting process, they're then brought to the United States. The nine agencies, including HIAS and World Relief, actually decide where to resettle these refugees. And um, we then put them in those, place them in those communities, uh, receive them at the, at the airport, bring them into an apartment or a home uh, for their initial few months. Uh, we, we furnish that home. Uh, we, we make sure it's stocked with culturally appropriate food. We do everything we can to get them acclimated to their new life, to get the kids in school, to try to get uh, the parents some kind of employment as, as early as possible so they can become self-sufficient as quickly as possible. I mean, that's the way the system works in a very brief nutshell. The ironic thing is that with the Afghan crisis, um, the, refugee, the refugee program had become so uh, uh, eviscerated under the Trump administration uh, in terms of our capacity, because our, the number of refugees we were resettling went from 110,000 in 2017 was the number set to 
15,000 was the number set by the president for 2021. So our our capacity uh, was was totally eviscerated. One third of all of the resettlement sites around the country were shut down and the surviving sites had a skeleton crew on staff. And so when all of a sudden uh, this surge happened with our the need to resettle about 80,000 Afghans at one time, we just didn't have the capacity to do it. And the U.S. didn't have the capacity to process them quickly. So they were brought here under parole, you know, just like the old days, just like before 1980. And now they're stuck in limbo without a pathway to a green card or citizenship. So we're trying to get Congress to to fix that mess. And now the Ukrainian uh, refugees are also being brought here under parole for for other reasons, uh, rather than on, under the refugee program. So um, it's a little mm-hmm. distressing, frankly, that rather than taking these opportunities as a way to build back uh, the refugee program, uh, we're bringing people in under parole, which is a system that used to be relied upon, which isn't a system at all. Um, so we just oh. have to repair and rebuild the refugee system so we have an orderly way, uh, a safe way to bring in refugees and make sure that they have uh, choices and pathways to to legal residency once they once they're here. Okay, uh, question for you, but let me first go to Matthew. Matthew, anything to add to the process that Mark described from World Relief's perspective? I mean, Mark gave a very good summary of a very complicated history and a very uh, convoluted, in some ways, process. And in some ways, it is. Um, you know, we built up such. A remarkable process. I mean, despite some of the political rhetoric of, well, we don't know who these refugees are, that's always been absurd. I mean, whenever our resettlement agencies have a new case, we get a whole packet of information on each person based on the interviews that our government has done and sometimes based on interviews from the UN before that, uh, all sorts of background checks that are gone into this process. I mean, we have a great deal of information. And I think one thing that is worth underscoring is even in a normal time, let's say prior to 2017, a very small percentage of the world's refugees were ever coming to the United States. I mean, we were usually looking at half of 1% of the world's refugees in a given year. Mm. In the Trump administration, that went down to less than one-tenth of 1% of the world's refugees. And still into the first couple of years of the Biden administration, um, if, you know, Afghans who are not technically coming as refugees, if you, you know, you don't include them, the numbers have still been very low and are still on track to be very low this year by any historical comparison. And that speaks to the, unfortunately, both first and foremost, it speaks to the efforts to really eviscerate the program, as Mark rightly said, in the last several years. And all of our organizations had to lay off a lot of staff and were in fewer locations. Um, but also the processing side of this uh, overseas, which is a governmental function primarily, has been really dramatically shut down and COVID didn't make that any easier. Uh, but it's also been very slow to rebuild. And at a time when the Afghan crisis followed by the Ukrainian crisis, um, not to mention other crises that don't get as much news, have demonstrated the urgent need to have a functional, robust, nimble refugee resettlement process where the U.S. could go back to leading the world in terms of third country refugee resettlement, which for a number of years, we um, we gave up that title to Canada, our neighbor who has a far smaller population and yet has managed to resettle more refugees in, in some of the last few years. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I guess question for, for both of you, not just Mark. Um, what does, what, what's the biggest um, hindrance or, or challenge you have as a religious-based uh, refugee resettlement organization uh, to do your work? I mean, what, what, maybe you have little challenge 
because of the doctor and the, the religious attitudes and teachings. But can you share with our listeners some of the things that, that uh, are a challenge working with uh, your places of faith to do this work? Um, you know, it, I would say it, it's, a, if you had asked me that question six years ago, I might have a different answer. Um, uh, when I, when I took this job in 2013 as, as CEO of Hyas, my biggest problem was frankly apathy in my community. And it wasn't just in the Jewish community. Frankly, it was across all communities of faith where there was just kind of not a lot of interest in, in the refugee program. And that changed almost overnight in 2015, when when my community and and frankly again all communities of faith um, woke up to the global refugee crisis, which had already been raging for four years at that point. Right. And it was it was with the image of Elan Kurdi, the Syrian refugee boy whose lifeless body washed up on the shores of Turkey after his family's failed attempt to get across the Mediterranean and, and get into Europe um, after countries like Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon were already beyond their saturation points in terms of the, the number of refugees that uh, were, were, they were really able to realistically host uh, without much assistance from the rest of the world. And that woke up, uh, again, our community has happened in September, just before the high holy days um, of, the, of the Jewish year. And so every congregation was focused on the refugee crisis. And um, the, the only good news is that my community's interest hasn't waned since. It's been very focused on helping refugees for the last seven years. And I really can't tell you any, any special problems that I have with my community because their interest has been so strong in this. I would say that the, the, maybe the, the problems that, that are from a fraction of the community, which Matthew also identified, you know, that, that there are certain prejudices that people have toward groups of people. And, and you know, these are prejudices that refugees come with, and these are prejudices that, that we as, 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 as hosts um, may have. And we have to work through all of those and, and distinguish the, the prejudice from, from the reality. Um, but in reality, I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, of the way my communities responded to the refugee crisis. And I wish that the international community had responded in the same way. Thank you, Mark. Helpful. Matthew. Well, I've done a lot of disagreeing with what Mark says, but on this one, the different places we come from, I get to say I'm not as proud as of the way my community has responded to the refugee crisis. And that's not to... We have amazing church partners and amazing volunteers and amazing donors who make our work possible, and we're incredibly grateful for them. The polls suggest that they're in the minority of evangelical Christians who are actively um, supportive of refugee resettlement. And I should say the polls of 20, late 2015, 2016, 2017, interestingly, the Afghan situation, the Ukrainian situation seem to have flipped those polls again. Um, and, you know, but if you go back to 2016, we saw the same surge of, of compassion and interest after that horrific photograph and people wanted to know how they could help Syrian refugees. And then within literally a couple months, and I, the, you know, the factor that changed things seems to have been a terrorist attack in Paris that was initially rumored to have been caused by Syrian refugees. So that turned out not to be true, but we also, we then experienced this incredible backlash and it wasn't, uh, you know, it was driven by politicians saying untrue things uh, and politicians who had a lot of 
apparently support among particularly white evangelical Christians. And we saw polls that a majority of white evangelicals would be happy to stop refugee resettlement altogether. And frankly, for as an evangelical Christian who's been, you know, spent my whole career in refugee resettlement and immigration work, it was a little bit of a shock because um, we thought that, you know, even compared to some of the other immigration issues that we work on, how do we respond to those who are undocumented or that sort of thing? Refugee resettlement used to feel like sort of the safe, easy, popular part of what Mm -hmm. we did. I mean, it's people with, by definition, a very compelling, sympathetic story, having fled persecution. Um, A lot of Christians were aware that a lot of refugees are themselves Christians, persecuted for their faith in some instances. It's a lot of the the Burmese refugees that we've served in the last few years. Um, So it used to seem like we had the church, the evangelical churches with us, and then it became very clear that we didn't. And I think one of the lessons for us as an organization is that we spent a lot of our time focusing on local churches on sort of the how of refugee resettlement, like let's train you to be culturally sensitive and, you know, how this process works. And we kind of skipped over the why because we thought people had read their Bibles and that was obvious. And it turns out that people had not been reading some of the same passages as I'd been reading. In fact, we did a poll with some partners a few years back. Uh, We asked self-described evangelical Christians, what is the most important factor influencing your views on the arrival of of immigrants to your community? And only 12% said the Bible. Now, the pollsters helping us set up this poll, which was an evangelical polling forum, kind of warned us up front that evangelical Christians know that the right answer if the Bible is one of the choices, is going to be the Bible. I mean, that may not be totally true, but like that, people know that's the answer they're supposed to respond if they're asked <laughs> about anything as an evangelical Christian. Right. And yet the, the Bible, my local church, the views of national Christian leaders, those options combined came up less often than the media. Mm-hmm. And we can all think of the ways that the media had, you know, depending which media you're consuming, and evangelicals are disproportionately consuming some media that had a fairly hostile approach to refugees in particular in 2015 and 2016. And um, that clearly had a huge influence on the evangelical community. It's something we've worked as hard as we can um, to really work against, in part by going back to what, as Christians, we would call discipleship. How do we think about how to understand our faith? What we think is a correct understanding of the Bible, which should make us very pro-refugee, pro-immigrant people. Um, You know, a reporter asked me recently, because now we do have polls that the majority of white evangelicals are very supportive of Afghans being resettled. And I suspect you'd find the same thing with Ukrainians. A reporter asked me recently, so what changed? And I kind of ducked the question by saying one thing that didn't change was the Bible. So if our views are so um, easily uh, volatile, if they're changing, you know, based on what's in the news, we ought to be grounding ourselves in our in our faith and the scriptures that we profess are our authority for pretty much everything. Right. Mm. Very, very insightful. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, here's another question uh, that has come up for me. I, I, this is the first well, Syrian refugee crisis. I think for a lot of Americans in a certain age group, this was the first large traumatic refugee crisis that we had experienced as adults. And it was shocking. Um, And it was shocking because of the anguish and the suffering and the death and the misery that we saw. And now we can all see it 24-7, right, on our phones. I mean, so how does, how does, this work, which in which touches that suffering immensely, uh, how is it borne by your people, right? I mean, they, they see death, they see people coming who have left husbands, wives, children. Maybe they died like in gunfire at the airport before they came, and that was twenty four hours before or, or two months before, and they don't have jobs, and 
that there's just such a, an immense trauma associated with these people. How, how, how is it, is this an issue for you all and your people? And how, if so, how does, how do you deal with it? Matthew, let's go to you first this time and then we'll go to Mark. Yeah, I mean, every refugee, by definition, they've fled a credible fear of persecution. They're all coming with some element of trauma. But I think one thing that has been particularly poignant with the Afghans who arrived in the last several months is it was a very recent trauma. I mean, it's a different kind of suffering to have fled trauma, even generationally. But I mean, some of the refugees I've personally known didn't flee their homes. They were born in a refugee camp. I mean, they were there for a generation or two. And that speaks to how slow our process is for so many people. I mean, they've been in camps for decades before they get resettled. Uh, with the Afghans, they were literally in Kabul. And then a few weeks later, they were in communities throughout the United States. And sometimes with us, in most cases, with a stay at a U.S. military base, which was less than ideal, but necessary for a very fast evacuation process. And not only was there trauma prior to that evacuation, which there certainly was for almost all of these individuals, but then the evacuation itself, which I, you know, I think we can all look at and say could have been handled much better and planned out better in advance and done before the U.S. military had withdrawn from Afghanistan, except for at the airport. But that trauma dynamic is something that is, it's really a huge part of the refugee integration process. And frankly, it's something I would love to see our system grow in is providing more trauma-informed care. I know that's my world relief. We've really tried to do in any place we can by providing counseling services and culturally appropriate um, you know, mental health support. It's usually something we need to figure out how to fund privately because it's not necessarily a robust part of, of our you know, government's resettlement process. Um, but I think, think that that's something that, you know, the longer we've been doing this, the more vital we see it is to help it, people work through the incredible suffering that they've experienced. And again, to go back from our faith perspective, um, I think Henry Nowen, the Catholic writer, talked about compassion as literally, you know, the literal, the root of that word is to suffer with. And we're inviting in some ways American volunteers to step in in a very small way, not to say that to equate them in any way, but to step into the suffering and the experience of people who've gone through this horrific realities that most Americans can't even comprehend and don't want to comprehend. And I wonder sometimes if that's part of the pushback to refugee resettlement in some, some sectors of American society is we'd rather not even think about that being a possibility. We'd just like to live in the bubble of the comfort of the United States of America. Uh, but for those of us who profess to, to follow a God who entered into suffering in the form of Jesus, we, we don't see that as an option. Um, it's something that's part of the Christian call. Thank you, Matthew. Mark. Yeah, I'll amend everything Matthew said. I'll talk about something just slightly, slightly different, uh, but related, which is when, when the first truly humanitarian program that Hyas did in many, many decades was our program in, in Kenya, where we uh, started a, a program when the United Nations stopped referring refugees for resettlement temporarily due to a, a massive fraud scandal. Hyas opened up an operation in, in Nairobi uh, to try to identify refugees uh, who were particularly vulnerable and needed resettlement while the UNHCR got its act together. This was about 20 years ago. And one thing we discovered is, um, or rediscovered, you know, during the refugee resettlement process, refugees are required to tell their story, to tell their persecution story and the story of their suffering and the anguish that they've been through over and over and over again. And this is done really without regard as to what kind of trauma or issues that 
in itself creates, right? Because this isn't them telling a story so they can help get past it and get through it. It's basically them telling story to the United Nations and then to a resettlement caseworker and then to a Homeland Security officer over and over again. Um, and, and the Homeland Security officer is trying to trip them up and find an inconsistency and and uh, in order to potentially deny them that refugee status. It's extremely stressful. And, uh, and nobody looks at that. And so we, and we realized that refugees were having difficulty just coping with telling their story. So we had to take our legal services program, our resettlement program, and actually add a psychosocial component to it because we found that refugees were having such a difficult time getting through this process. And then we had to open that up to our own staff because they were being so traumatized by having to elicit this information from the refugees over and over again. And, and so this is something that we don't really look at. Like we're just, we're so focused on trying to get the refugees from danger into safety that we don't notice the, the harm that is happening um, as a result of the way we do these things as a system. And this is something that we really need to look at. And it's harm that I think is done to the refugees themselves by making them relive this trauma over and over again and to our refugee caseworkers and you know by having to be a part of that process so this is something i would really like us to look at uh, for our own staff as well as for the refugees themselves but given all the other problems with the refugee program it's it's been difficult to prioritize that mark how does your how does the jewish faith underpinnings help your people deal with this suffering i mean as you know, Matthew talked a little bit about that from the Christian perspective. What, what, what is there re- religiously to help you all shoulder this burden? Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I would say the most important concept in Judaism is probably the concept of Shabbat, which is that you've got to take a day off, mm-hmm. you know, to reflect and to stop working and to you know to and 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 to stop. Um, being and, and to get a break from the troubles that you face in this world, right? I mean, it's it's really important for the mental health of of all of us who are in this field. And then also, we we know that for and this works both ways. That again, that if, when you look at the Torah, it is it is a it is refugee story after refugee story after refugee story. And so to know that this is nothing new, this is something that we've gone through, our ancestors have gone through, we're helping people go through right now, and that we will get through this. And with, with, you know, with the help of each other, we will be able to survive. And I think in terms of the role that faith plays, and this, this is something that the, 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 we, we, as, we have learned as Jewish people, you know, when, when you flee, all you were able to flee with as a refugee is your faith and your teachings, right? You can't bring your money with you, your belongings with you. Oftentimes you can't even bring your family with you. All these things you lose, but they can't take your faith away from you. They can't take Torah away from you. And so it's that that has allowed the Jewish people to survive as a refugee people, um, you know, in in exile for for many, many centuries is is that strong sense of faith and and tradition and and Torah. And, And this applies to, all refugees, right, of faith. And and this is important for us to keep in mind. Like at highest, we keep emphasizing that it's not, we don't need to be faith-based so much as we need to be faith-sensitive. 
right? And being faith sensitive, um, we can do because we are a faith-based organization. We have to be sensitive to the faith of the people that we're helping, sensitive to how important faith is to them by remembering how important it is and it was to us. Great. That's super, super helpful. Matthew, I see you nodding. Anything you wanted to add uh, to what Mark said? No, I, I, I mean, I don't think I can encapsulate it much better, but I think that's a, a really helpful way to frame it. And, um, you know, something that we are, you know, even working with churches here are always helping them understand how, and it goes to that root of a belief in religious freedom, which is an essential element of what it is to be an American, that we have, we serve people with a variety of faith backgrounds and some of no faith background. Uh, and most of our volunteers are coming at this from the motivation of their faith. Um, but it's, you know, it's been a remarkable process. The Refugee Resettlement Program, which is, as Mark said, is largely done by faith-based organizations, not to discount our, our non-faith-based partners. Um, but I don't think you could do the refugee resettlement process that we've seen in the last several decades in the United States if it wasn't people both motivated by their faith, but then able to recognize the value of faith to the people who are coming in as well in very many cases. Okay. Well, this has been great. We did not get to the Afghan refugee crisis itself, but we talked all about it with a different name, right? But if if you want to give each of you a, a minute, if there's something you want to say about this particular crisis, uh, I'll give you each a minute. Uh, Mark, anything about the, because that's what our listeners have experienced. I mean, they've experienced the Syrian refugee crisis, you know, starting seven years ago, but this Afghan thing, I think was a shock to our system. Uh, anything, uh, uh, wisdom, Mark, uh, for a minute. Well, you know, looking at the, the long view, I, I want us to start thinking about things long-term. Uh, the, the refugee crises are going to happen. We know that they keep happening over and over again. And yet it seems that as a country, we're not prepared for them. You know, we have to start planning for refugee crises in advance so we can be ready when they happen. We weren't ready for Afghanistan. You know, we should have been. We weren't ready for Ukraine. We should be. We have to build up a system where we can respond. And by tapping into communities of faith, the government, the United States government can respond that much more powerfully and that much more effectively. But we have to start planning for the next crisis before it happens. Okay. I just added that we absolutely need to start planning for the next crisis. And we also can't move on from the Afghan crisis without it being resolved. And Mark already alluded to that. But I mean, because these 70 plus thousand Afghans were brought in with parole, and now we're apparently doing the same thing with Ukrainians for in different ways, they're going to be stuck without permanent legal status. They are currently in most cases stuck with a parole date with an expiration date on it. And that's incredibly stressful for people who have fled a situation that they cannot imagine going back to. And realistically, we're not sending them back to that as a country, but then why wouldn't we allow them just as if they had come through the refugee program to apply for their green card? You know, you know that's I think one of the key policy goals we see in the short term is making sure that Congress passes some process, some sort of an adjustment act so that Afghans um, who were brought here by our government welcome that incredible cost by lots of American people who have sacrificed all sorts of things to welcome them, that we don't finish that, leave that mission incomplete by not allowing them to become fully integrated residents and eventually citizens of our country. Okay, so so to, so to make sure we understand, I did catch that that so th these these particular refugees were brought in not under this 1980 legislative structure. Uh, they were brought in under the old parole. Uh, is there anything we should know? I mean, it sounds like what we 
need to know is that that is the case and that, that that's insufficient. That's, that's not going to get them where they need to be. We need to move Congress to bring them in under the new 1980, uh, new, the, 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 that structure. Is that, did I catch that correctly? Well, we, we need to uh, make sure that Congress passes an adjustment act so that these refugees can get a green card, right? Who, these refugees who are not refugees under the law, but really are refugees because they fled for their lives to come to this country. And so okay. because they circumvented the Refugee Act of 1980, they need to have access to a green card through some other way. And if Congress doesn't act, it means these people are going to have to apply for asylum and it's that re-traumatization that I talked about. They're going to have to go through this years-long process of telling their story over and over and over again, uh, trying to get to a pathway where they can get a green card. That's totally unnecessary. Congress should just pass an Adjustment Act so they can apply for a green card without having to endure the asylum process. Well, and, and, and then they should fix the refugee system so they never have to use the parole process again for an urgent situation okay. like this. Now, I'm th- this this. The museum, nor does this podcast ever, uh, were apolitical. But can you tell us, because it might be helpful for our listeners to understand the landscape, was this done consciously to, to bring them in under parole? And if so, what was the reasoning not to use the program that had been used for 40 years? It was done that way because the refugee, one of the weaknesses of the refugee program is it involves many agencies. There's a lot of players and, and there's there's Homeland Security, there's Health and Human Services, there's the State Department, and then there's all these security and vetting agencies. Okay. And to get them all aligned and to act quickly has become almost impossible. Okay. So the United so instead they just use parole and just Homeland Security use parole authority to bring them all in and to simplify and expedite the process. Okay. But by doing it that way, um, all these people have no access to benefits or, or any, any sense of security. Um, so we need to make sure that the refugee program gets back on its feet and can act nimbly and quickly. So we don't need to rely on this parole process, which is fast, but it's kind of a road to nowhere. It gets you to safety, but that's it. I see. So it was because of the urgency, the time urgency of the situation. That's what happened. It's because of the urgency and because of the sorry shape that the refugee program is in right now. Okay. Anything to add to that, Matthew, before we? Yeah, I mean, and that sorry shape the refugee program in is, you know, I think that's the Trump administration's work and their intention. I would also say all the resettlement agencies were encouraging the Biden administration when they announced they were going to leave Afghanistan to start a plan. You know, we'd suggested and many of us, well, you could get people out to Guam and then process them there once they're safe. And the Biden administration didn't do that. Uh, Clearly, Kabul fell faster than they expected it to but it, okay. it i understand i mean parole is probably the only thing they could do in that emergency very short time period to get people out but it does have long-term consequences and we should definitely be planning so that we don't have to do that again although it does seem that is what we're doing with ukraine again in some okay. ways thank you uh, matthew and mark as we conclude do you want to share anything else that has not been said that would help listeners better understand our present moment in the american narrative and how they might play a productive role You've mentioned a lot of things, but I wanted to give you that last chance. Anything that hasn't been said? The refugee program, it is a public-private partnership. It cannot work without the private part, with, without, the, uh, without faith communities and individuals stepping up and volunteering to welcome people to this country. Uh, so there's lots of opportunities to do that, and we hope people will take advantage of it. Okay. Thank you, Matthew, for the thumbs up.
We have been talking to uh, Matthew Sorens and U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief and Mark Hetfield, President and CEO at HIAS. Thank you both for your time and helping us uh, understand another compelling story about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, which is the last great American story. Thank you both. Thank you. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.